Welcome back to episode 5 of Dwight Explains the Bible. We're going to talk this time about Jesus and a little bit about his story. So the story begins as the king of Judea, Herod the Great, gets word that the king will be born in and around Bethlehem. So he orders his soldiers to go out and kill every young person in Bethlehem under the age of two. So Joseph and Mary flee the city to go to Nazareth. And they had to go to Nazareth, according to another part in the Bible, because of the census. King Herod died between 1 and 4 BCE, or before Common Era. The census didn't take place until 4 CE. So there's a five to eight year gap between when Jesus was actually born. But regardless of those silly details, Jesus was born to a virgin. And this definition or this, the word virgin used in this case means young girl. It doesn't necessarily mean someone who hasn't had sex but it's not exclusive to it. So it just means a young girl. And many scholars believe Mary to be about 14 years old. And since a 14 year old cannot consent to getting pregnant, God raped Mary. So anyway, Jesus was born in a manger in a stable, which is just like a barn. There was no room at the inn. And a little fun tidbit, the word that's translated to inn, as in a hotel, actually just means somebody's house and they usually have a guest room. So it wasn't actually like a motel or nothing. It was just a guy who didn't have room, but he said you can stay in the barn. After Jesus is born, we don't hear much from him for about the next 30 years. There is a missing infancy gospel where it does tell stories of Jesus in his youth. And there are some stories that show Jesus has these magical powers at an early age. One time he shaped a dove out of clay and brought it to life. Another time he was playing with another child on the rooftop and the child fell off the roof and died. And when Jesus came down to the child, everyone thought Jesus pushed him. So Jesus brought him back to life so that kid could say, no, Jesus didn't push me, I fell. There's a couple other stories in the infancy, infancy gospel. Um, but again, the, the, the church doesn't think that's relevant or they didn't like the message that the rest of the gospel said. So they didn't include that. So before we get uh, deeper into the New Testament, let's talk about the New Testament. The New Testament is obviously a collection of books, um, most notably the four Gospels and a whole bunch of letters, uh, books of letters from Paul. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have no known authors. We don't have any copies of the originals. We have copies of the copies, 
and we have copies of those copies, but we don't have any original documentation. The Gospel of Mark is the earliest gospel ever written, and that was written about 30 to 40 years after Jesus. The last gospel, the Gospel of John, was written about 80 years after Jesus. So nobody who wrote the Gospels ever met Jesus. The Gospel of Mark was definitely not written by Mark. The Gospel of Matthew was definitely not written by Matthew, and so on and so on. Each of these Gospels were written individually. They weren't meant to be part of a Bible. They were just a story um, telling the, the story of Jesus to a certain people. It was written with certain biases and influences to try to convince certain people that the Jesus was real and he's the king or the Messiah. When the Bible was compiled uh, around uh, Emperor Constantine's time, they had a whole lot of Gospels. There are dozens of Gospels and they decided on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that told a cohesive story that they could use to unify all the different beliefs out there. There were people who believed Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that Jesus was God the Son. They believed that Jesus was just an apocalyptic preacher. Some people even believed that Jesus was just a spirit. The, the area around Jesus has a lot of uh, heavy Egyptian influence. And in Egyptian religions, there was a lot of spirit religions out there. Even stories like Osiris and Horus. Um, many people, they, the, the priest would teach them that they were real people, but the priest themselves thought they were just a spirit. But they, they taught that these spirits were real people because they didn't think the the people of the city would believe them if it was just a spirit. So th there's a lot of Egyptian influences that come together in the New Testament. There are 13 books in the Bible in the New Testament that are accredited to Paul and most scholars believe that about seven of them actually came from Paul and the rest of them are people writing on Paul's behalf and trying to carry on his story. Kind of like when a, a movie has a part two and it's done by a different director and the story completely changes even though there's elements of the same storyline. That's kind of the same thing that happened here. So the, the Constantine's Council basically looked at all these different books and decided, okay, these are the ones we're going to use to tell the story that we want to go forward with to unify all the different beliefs. An important thing to know about the copies of the Gospels that we have are how they were made. They didn't obviously have copying machines back there, so they would have to copy things out by hand. So just to make this an easy example, we have cities 1, 2, and 3, and they're just in a straight line. So city 1 has the original, and city 2 wants a copy of it. So city 2 
would send a scribe to city one and would copy out the gospels. So then they would bring that copy back to city two. And the way some of these copies were made, somebody would have, you know, a half dozen or so scribes and one guy would be reading it and the other guys would be writing down what they heard the scribe or their, their reader say. Sometimes the scribes would just copy it themselves. They wouldn't even know what they're writing. They're just copying the shapes of the symbols and write it down. Would they know that a little accent mark on this symbol was an accident or on purpose and whether or not it completely changes the meaning of the word? So when they got back to city number two, the new person reading it sees that accent mark and thought it was supposed to be there even though it wasn't and it changes the word completely. As an example, we'll talk about this Bible verse. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. People try to explain that verse saying that the needle is the gateway to a city that was really small so you would have to dismount the camel you would have to unpack it and get it to like crawl on its knees to get through the the archway but the problem is there is no archaeological proof of any sort of a doorway like that existing so we look at the the greek word for camel the new testament is written in greek so we look at that word in Greek, and the word is camelos. I might be mispronouncing it, but that's irrelevant. Um, but the word is camelos. Well, the word camelos, if you spell it with an E instead of an I in a certain spot, means rope. So if this if the speaker is saying camelos, and the scribe thought he said it with an E and not an I, and wrote down the wrong word then the other word camelos that's translated into rope completely changes the meaning of the verse it went from it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to go into heaven and it was supposed to be it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be in heaven and this changes it completely because the, the original version that people like to talk about says, well, a rich man can still get to heaven. It's just really challenging. He has to do certain things. But the original, like, correct version says it's impossible because you can't get a rope through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. So it's easier for this impossible thing than for a rich man to get into heaven. Because later on in the Bible, um, it says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. So that fits a lot better with the story of the Bible than it being a camel. So then, when City 3 wants a copy of City 1's manuscripts, they go to City 2 because it's closer, and City 2 has a copy. So City 3 copies City 2's manuscripts with all those errors and then they make errors of their own doing the same thing now this isn't to say that we don't know what the original says exactly because we can still infer 
based on what we understand about language and the you know the context around it what it probably meant to say but there are those little bits in the bible that completely change the meaning from something being impossible to something being nearly impossible since the first gospel wasn't written until 40 years after Jesus nobody knows what Jesus said nobody knows when anyone says well Jesus says just shut up right there just shut up because nobody knows we might have stories and there might be a few uh, five cent words and phrases that people might remember or have passed along that might be exactly correct to in the ballpark of what Jesus may or may not have said. But we continue to misremember things. We all know the song, this is the song that never ends. Well, it's actually this is the song that doesn't end. Go back to the original Lamb Chops Playhouse and look it up. It's doesn't end, not never ends. So little things, your, your brain plays tricks on you and we misremember things and our you know it's just it, it's the way the human brain works um but we know for sure that nobody who ever heard jesus or spoke with jesus or met jesus wrote any bit of the bible how many times have you met someone and they introduced themselves and within about half a second you've already forgotten their names but we're going to say that somebody 30 to 40 years after Jesus, who never met Jesus, magically remembers exactly what Jesus said. The original Gospel of Mark did not include the resurrection story. The resurrection story didn't appear until Matthew, and then after it appeared in Matthew, people added it to the Gospel of Mark. We know this because the earliest copies that we have of Mark don't include the ending of the resurrection. Now this isn't to say that the resurrection did or didn't happen. This is just to say that it wasn't important to Mark's story that Jesus came back. That's more important to the Greeks who believe that your soul moves on and stays around for eternity so they could have a heaven, you have to defeat the, the bad guy to get to heaven, yada yada. Um, but originally Mark didn't have it. So the story of Jesus is basically that he spent his days helping people, healing the sick, preaching repentance. Now there's a difference in whether or not a guy named Jesus existed and whether or not Jesus performed miracles. There's circumstantial evidence that shows that Jesus actually existed. There is no evidence of any of his miracles. But let's start going through his life and looking at his miracles and what he's done. So his first miracle is that he was born white. White Jesus. Praise God. Okay, that's a joke. Um, Jesus was born in the Middle East. So if, he, if 
God wanted him to be the same skin tone as the people around him, he would have been dark skinned. He wouldn't have been white. Now, maybe God wants him to be white for whatever reason, but even the earliest depictions of Jesus and his disciples showed them all being very dark skinned. More like black than Arabic. I know my word choice isn't always great, but you know what I mean. Don't crucify me, okay? So Jesus basically appears out of nowhere, gets baptized by John, and then he comes across a group of fishermen on a boat casting their nets out into the water and having no luck. Jesus says, cast your nets over here. And they do, and they catch a whole bunch of fish. So first off, wouldn't the natural reaction of the fishermen be to tell Jesus to shut up and don't tell us how to do our jobs? But like, they, they don't know who this guy is, even if the, you know, the story goes through that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't know that. They just think it's some guy telling us, oh, go over here. Dude, we're, they, we do this all day. We know what we're doing, right? But anyway, so they do it. They, they cast their nets. They find a whole bunch of fish. And then Jesus says, come with me and I'll make you a fisher of men. So all these dis new disciples who scholars believe to be late teens or early 20s, kind of around that age, um, all of them are like, yeah, sure. We'll just quit our jobs and leave our families to come walk with you. Sure. Why not? There was another story where Jesus healed a blind woman. He spit on her face to heal her. Was that necessary? If you're God and you can do anything, why do you have to spit into somebody's face to heal them? And what is your spit going to do that just covering their eyes wouldn't do? Then... Jesus did a whole bunch of other little miracles, healing lepers, um, raised Lazarus from the dead, but people say maybe Lazarus wasn't even dead, he was just on the verge of death, but whatever, you know, all these silly little miracles that there's no evidence for whatsoever. He turned water into wine, and it was the best wine at the party, you know, um, but then Jesus had all these really famous quotes that people love to use all the time. Christians love to use them and they are out of context. So Jesus says, or is uh, quoted as saying, I and the Father are one. Saying me and God are, are one. And then there's a big debate. Is it one in purpose or are we literally one person? So if we look to the context of that story, Jesus is trying to do things that God commands his people to do and the Jews are giving him a hard time and they're really hassling him at this point and he's saying well look you you see that I'm just doing works of the father if you've seen the father you've seen me I'm doing his work so there's a a spot in the Bible um, 1 John 5 7 maybe I don't know but it's talking about, um, th this is what the Christians use to show that the Trinity is a real thing. And again, the Trinity is a invention of the church later on in life. It was never a teaching of the Bible or of Jesus. 
the Trinity was a byproduct or something that came about through the Council of Nicaea. But they use the verse that there are three that bear record in heaven. The, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And the Word is supposed to be Jesus. So there's another verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. So apparently Jesus is the Bible. The Bible is Jesus. So let that uh, sulk in your brain for a minute. But Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, in context, just means he's doing the works of his Father. Again, he's not making a declaration that he is God. Many times, people ask Jesus who he is, and he says, who do you say I am? He never really answers. Now, he sometimes gives positive affirmations to what the answers may be, but he never makes a, a definitive statement himself. Another notable quote that people say is that Jesus fulfilled the law. And they go to the verse, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Well, by what we consider synonyms, um, abolish and fulfill mean the same thing. But if he says, I come not to abolish then fulfill must mean something else. So if we look up, get out the Greek lexicon, and we look up the word abolish and the word fulfill, abolish absolutely means to get rid of. So Jesus says, I do not come to get rid of the old law, but to fulfill it. And when you look up fulfill, it means to embody or to like be the living example. So, Jesus is supposed to live the law perfectly to show others how to do it. So, when he's saying, I, uh, I come to fulfill it, I come to be your example so you can do what I do. An example of this would be that there's a speed limit of 30 miles an hour in my city. So, if I got in my car and I drove from one spot to the next and I did 30 miles an hour the whole way, I fulfilled the law but the law still exists. A common response to this from the Christians is when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. However, Jesus did not say what it was. He just said, it is finished. It's another open-ended, ambiguous saying. He wasn't just talking about the law right before he said that, so there was nothing to base the it on. What else could it be when it is finished? Could it be that he led the perfect life as an example for other people? It is finished. It is finished. My time on earth is finished. Another answer to the question, did he fulfill the law, is, well, Jesus gave us a new covenant. He gave us the two greatest commandments. So let's look at that in context. Jesus was being grilled by the Sadducees who were trying to make him double speak the law. They would ask him, well, do we pay taxes or not? And he would say, well, give, you know, pay your taxes and whatever's left goes to God. And then they asked him, well, what's the greatest commandment? 
because they know there's the Ten Commandments and, you know, there's 600 total laws and everything else. So Jesus summarized it by saying the two greatest commandments, he was asked for one and he gave them two. Jesus doesn't follow directions. But he said to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is where the Christians stop reading. But for the love of God, please keep reading. So he says, love your neighbors as you love yourself. All of the laws and the prophets, or all the laws of the prophets and the Torah hang on these two commandments. So he's saying that all of the laws apply and they're summarized by saying if you love God and love your neighbors, that's basically the gist of all the laws you should be following. It's similar to when you were a kid and you went over to your friend's house and your mom told you to behave. Well, when she said behave, that means extra things. That means don't start screaming, don't run around, say yes please, no thank you, take off your shoes, play nicely, share. So all these other laws that she summarized by saying behave. Just because she summarized them doesn't mean they no longer exist. Another story is with Jesus and the fig tree. So I mentioned before how the Bible was written somewhat poetically and there were clamshell style writings where the first part of the story matches the last part of the story and the second to first matches the second to last and they go in that order and the Jesus and the fig tree is no different. Jesus is walking and he sees a fig tree and he sees it has no fruit and he says you shall bear no fruit ever again. Now, we all know that it, at that time, the fig tree was out of season, so it wouldn't have fruit anyway. But Jesus said that, um, and then he goes to the temple, and that's where he flips all the tables, and then he comes back, and the fig tree is dead. So, this is another one of those clamshells where the it's like Inception. There's a story in a story in a story. So the fig tree was representative of the temple that you no longer needed because Jesus was supposed to be the sacrifice, the last sacrifice, so we don't need the temple anymore. So the fig tree was kind of a metaphor for the temple. The temple was run by the Jews. And, okay, so the temple, um, you're supposed to come in and you're supposed to tithe to the church or whatever and there would be money changers outside so that way if you came from a faraway land and your money looked different you go to the money changers and they turn it into local currency so you could tithe in what the local people would use so when Jesus flipped the tables of the money changers there's a double meaning there, um, basically just means that, that you don't need to go to the temple anymore. And then also that the coins had a picture of the emperor on them. 
So this would technically be another graven image made out of gold and silver, which is expressly prohibited. And Jesus didn't like the fact that they were using graven images in his temple. Or a temple to honor God. So there's kind of a couple different thought processes behind this. But Jesus flipped the tables and by doing so, he pissed off the Jews and got himself on the radar of the Roman government. So the Jews were making a lot of noise to the Roman government, so that's when the Roman government said, okay, we'll, we'll handle this. Now, just a quick side note here. I was raised in a Catholic church, and I've been around the Bible my whole life. I've read a lot of it. I've heard a lot of stories, a lot of different lectures and interpretations and apologetics and arguments and everything else. So I'm sure that I've said something that's incorrect uh, uh, about the Bible, maybe misquoting what gospel or what exactly was said. And I've been doing this my whole life. So imagine when something wasn't written down until the earliest of 30 years later. How accurate do you think they're going to be? So the Romans put out an APB on Jesus. We need to find this Jesus guy. We need to bring him in and we need to have a talk with him. Jesus knew this was going to happen. So at the Last Supper, he told his disciples, One of you will betray me. This is another part to the story that has a common understanding and a very less common understanding. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, most people assume that he's saying, one of you is going to stab me in the back, you dirty, rotten scumbag. But the less common interpretation is that Jesus needed his crucifixion to happen. He knew what was going to happen, and he needed it to happen. The only way to get this to happen was to have one of his people tell the Romans where he was. So he needed one of his disciples to do this. He needed his disciples to do him a favor that he knew they didn't really want to do. Nobody wanted to turn in their God, their Messiah, into the Romans. But if nobody did that, then Jesus wouldn't have gone on the cross and the whole time on earth would have been wasted. So when the disciples are saying, is it me, Lord? Is it me? They're, they're finding out, do I have to be the one who does this? So there's just an alternate way to look at it. I mean, they tell the one story, but there's also another way to look at it. Um, and just as a, a side example, so Peter Pan, the movie and the story of Peter Pan, Peter Pan takes these kids off to Neverland and Captain Hook is always trying to get Peter Pan, right? But what if Pete or what if Captain Hook was trying to stop Peter Pan from kidnapping these kids? Captain Hook was actually the good guy trying to stop Peter Pan from kidnapping these kids. So there, there's two ways to look at every story. So the whole thing about uh, Judas turning Jesus in and Judas was the bad guy. Like, well, there could be more to this story than what you actually think. 
So who wants to be the one responsible for the death of Jesus, of turning him in to face the worst time of his life? But the Christian narrative always ends up with trying to blame other people for things. They're never at fault themselves, but somebody else is always at fault. Somebody else is always acting evil. So Judas was acting evil by turning in Jesus, which was required to complete the prophecy according to the Christians. So Judas told the Romans where Jesus was and got his 30 shekels or whatever. And Jesus was in the garden praying at the time. If Jesus is God, then who was Jesus praying to? If Jesus, if God the Son and God the Father are the same, if they're the same entity but separate persons, if they're the same entity, what, what, who, who would, like, who was Jesus praying to? That just doesn't make sense. But, okay, so he got captured, and then before we forget about Judas, let, let's finish out his story. So he got his money, and then he bought, a, a bit of land. It's called the Field of Blood. And this is where his story ends. Um, depending on what part of the Bible you read, he hung himself and that's how he died. Another part of the Bible says he tripped and fell and basically his he cut his stomach open and everything, all his entrails spilled out. So one was accidental tripping and the other story says he hung himself. So again, this is God's literal word. So with two conflicting stories, which one is literally the truth? Do we believe, uh, believe the version in Luke or do we believe the version in Acts? So now going back to Jesus, so Jesus was captured and then he was brought before the Pontius Pilate and kind of held on trial. And the Pilate said, I don't find anything wrong with this guy, so it's up to you guys, the Jews. It's up to whatever you decide. So the Jews are looking at this guy who claims to be the Messiah. And a little bit about this time era, there were a small handful of Jesuses who claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus was just one of the many. One of the other Jesuses also had disciples and they were all stoned to death. So of course the Jews were going to be skeptical of another Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. In Isaiah it says, that the Jews would even reject the Messiah. It's like, well, according to the Jewish law, the Messiah has not been here yet. They said he is not the Messiah because according to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the Tanakh, the Messiah would be a great leader. He would be a king. He would rule the nations. Jesus was a traveling prophet. Now, Christians today will say that he's a king, he's my king. Well, that's not what the Jews were talking about. You're redefining what they said. It's their book. They get to decide what they meant when they wrote stuff down. 
So they said he would be a great king. They said he, the Messiah, would bring peace to Israel. Israel has never, ever been at peace. The Messiah was also supposed to come from the bloodline of David. And as we talked about before, Jesus was born a miraculous birth of Mary. The only bloodlines, the only genealogies given in the New Testament follow Joseph. Joseph didn't put his seed in Mary. So Joseph's conflicting, the two genealogies are conflicting and they're irrelevant because Joseph had nothing to do with Jesus. So Joseph's bloodline is a silly side note that means nothing. So of course the Jews didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't fulfill anything that the Jews were told by God that they would see in their Messiah. But why would Jesus say he was the Messiah? Why would he go around doing all these things? I don't know. Probably the same reason that all the other messiahs went around claiming to be the messiah. A small handful of them were also named Jesus. This was a very common thing back in the day, especially in that one region. If you look on a map where uh, Canaan and Egypt are, that little area of the world map is where everything in the Bible happened. Everything happened in that little spot, Mesopotamia, that whole region. and. Everything, like the, the the whole Jesus Messiah story, that was that was flooding the area. Having a Messiah was trending in that area at that time. So Jesus was just another guy claiming to be this Messiah guy, and again not fulfilling the prophecies. So Pilate was basically saying, I don't care about your little prophecy in the Messiah. I don't care because he wasn't Jewish. So he said, it's up to the Jews, and the Jews said, we want him dead. So the pilot was trying to handle a an uproar, a, a mob outburst. So he's like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll kill this guy to make the Jews happy. So on Good Friday, as it says, um, Jesus was, you know, taken. He was beaten and whipped and tortured. And then he went up to the cross and he was put on the cross next to two other guys. These two other guys most likely had the same beginning as Jesus, wherein they were beaten and whipped and tortured and they were just waiting to die. They were just miserable and there was nothing left for them to do but die. So Jesus is up on the cross and his famous last words on the cross are what? Into your hands I commend my spirit. Or was his last words talking to Barabbas, one of the other guys on the cross, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise on this day. Or was his last words, Father, why have you forsaken me? Or was his last words, forgive them for they know not what they do. It just depends what gospel you're reading, what version of the story you're reading of God's literal truth. 
So one of the guys on the cross was kind of mocking Jesus, saying, well, if you're the son of God, take yourself down from the cross. And Barabbas says, leave him alone, he's suffered enough or something. And then Jesus said, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Barabbas, which that name is Aramaic, that was a language of the people in Jesus's community. Barabbas means son of the father. And according to other historical documents, Barabbas's first name was Yeshua, just like Jesus's actual name or more accurately spoken is Yeshua or Yeshua. So if we're translating both names into English, then Jesus, son of the father, was on the cross next to Jesus, son of the father. So Jesus was up on the cross for a little while, and he just wasn't dying. Now, historically, um, it's been known that people have survived on the cross for five or six days. So this wasn't too uncommon, according to historical records. But they wanted him to die, like just die already, you know, be done with this crap. So they lanced him in the side, and then blood and water poured out. Now, let me ask you this. If you've ever seen somebody bleed, how would you know that you're seeing blood and water? Like that just, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How would people be able to identify the difference between blood and water? So then along comes Joseph of Arimathea or something and he tells a pilot, hey, uh, let me take him down. And I guess Joseph was this rich influential guy and they, they wanted to take Jesus down because he was crucified. So the Jews were happy, but he didn't want to upset other people or I don't know, some whatever socio-political agenda. But okay, so we're going to take him down. And then Joseph had a tomb that he wanted to put Jesus in. So this crucifixion happened on a Friday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. It starts at sundown on the Sabbath. The Jews would never start a trial on a Friday afternoon. It just wouldn't happen. But for whatever reason, they did this time. They made an exception for a guy they didn't even think was that important. So, Jesus is now in the tomb, and then not three days later, because three days later would be Monday night, but on the third day, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. Now, the story of his resurrection has many variations. When people found him, the tomb was open, or the, the tomb was closed, or a woman discovered him, or there were guards, or there weren't guards, or a guard found him. And there, there was flip-flopping in the story of who was there, how they found them. But the question I always ask the Christians is, nope, like, how do you know he rose from the dead? He has a brother named James, not James the disciple, but he has another brother named James. Mary had another kid. So maybe they were similar looking. I mean, who knows? Whatever. But nobody can explain the resurrection. Oh, yeah, he rose from the dead. How? Like, did his body, 
laying on the tomb, did it start to glow and did it rise up? Did his body disappear and then reappear standing up? I mean, like, explain to me. His body's laying there. Now pretend we're watching this on TV. Explain what is happening as he is resurrected. Nobody knows, right? So we just have to presume that Jesus... It was actually Jesus that these people say they saw after the fact. Which, I mean, okay, that, you know, it makes sense enough. But at the same token, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. There's still suspicions. So then Jesus apparently appeared to a couple of his disciples. And then he appeared to a crowd of 500 people. And Christians love to quote this as proof that he rose from the dead. That he appeared to 500 people. Well, there's no proof of that. There, the Bible says that, but there's absolutely no historical documentation of a large group of people claiming to have seen the risen Jesus. So, I always tell those people when they say there was 500 witnesses, that I heard that there was 501 witnesses that saw those 500 witnesses lying that they were making it all up. So now we have two claims that cancel each other out. So Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't really do anything else. I mean, he just, he appeared to a couple people and then he ascended into heaven. So what was the point of rising from the dead? Why not just die and then go straight to heaven? He had to show that he conquered Satan and hell and death. So that way the Greeks, who again believed in the immortal soul, would have a nice continuity into their theology where they would go into heaven into the next life. But nobody wrote any of this down for like 30 something years. Nobody mentions Jesus. Like they'll say there's historical records of Pliny the Younger and Josephus, but both of these guys are in the second century in 100 CE and later. And the only thing they write about is the existence of Christians. They don't talk about Jesus. They don't talk about the resurrection. They talk about the Christians. They talk about the fan club. There were a couple dozen notable historians during Jesus's time that didn't write anything about Jesus. So why didn't anybody write anything about Jesus? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. So Jesus said on his Sermon on the Mount, not all of you who are hearing this will taste death before I return. So according to what Jesus said and what the crowd understood, Jesus would be coming back in their lifetime or at least in the lifetime of the youngest person standing there. So unless you know a 2,000-year-old person, then Jesus was wrong. Jesus did not fulfill the Messianic prophecies, and he did not fulfill his own prophecy. Christians will say that he was talking about the generation of man or something like that. Well, obviously, when he told it to the people, that's what the people understood. The people understood Jesus to mean he was coming right back. So is Jesus, who is supposed to be God, a bad communicator? 
I mean, that, that actually seems to be my best guess, that God is not good with communicating to man because man is always responsible for all these errors. So God is a poor communicator. If God is a poor communicator, then the people did not understand God correctly, and that's why they didn't write it down. Great. Well, now let's talk about Paul. Paul is the only guy we know pretty much certainly that he wrote any of the New Testament. Paul also believes that Jesus is coming back really soon. He tells different people in his letters, don't even worry about getting married and having kids. Jesus is coming back. I mean, it's just it's pointless. Just, just be good until Jesus gets back. And where did Paul get his information from? Well, he got a vision from God. So God, again, was a poor communicator. So God is unable to effectively relay his messages to his own people. Paul is credited as the reason there's Christians today. Everybody would have just let the Jesus story die, but Paul kept writing everybody and spreading the word, so he kept it alive. And because of him, the Gospels were written, and we now have the New Testament, we now have Christians today. Oh, golly. Okay, I think that's enough for this episode. Um, again, if you have any questions or comments um, or have anything you want me to explain more, uh, email me at joeg at atheist.com. Thank you.